Hi, this is Dr. Adrian. Welcome to Health Bite, the podcast where we explore all things health and wellness. This episode of Health Bite is sponsored by Dell Nutrition, a line of functional nutrition bars and supplements I have personally curated to enhance health and well-being. You can find out more at dellnutrition.com. In this episode of Health Bite, I speak with Dr. Nerissa Crayer. Dr. Nerissa is a pediatric endocrinologist as well as founder of Industry MD Coach, where she helps physicians navigate a career shift into the pharmacologic industry. Dr. Nerissa's own path began when she was forced to explore new career options. Her ability to do this with a sense of purpose motivated her desire to help others do the same. Among other things, Dr. Nerissa and I discuss how a sense of agency and autonomy in the workplace not only promote emotional well-being, but physical well-being as well. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, Dr. Crayer. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You have an interesting background as a pediatric endocrinologist and was once working at the illustrious Mass General Hospital. And circumstances got you to pivot your focus elsewhere and to found this organization or program, the Industry MD Coach. So tell us a little bit about how that came to be. Right. So pediatric endocrinologist, as you mentioned, moving out of my fellowship, I stayed where I was in fellowship for about a year as a junior faculty. During my fellowship, I did a lot of clinical research. And so I very much wanted clinical research to be a part of my professional career and a big part of it. So I wasn't planning to see patients day in and day out. I really wanted to focus on clinical research. So my family and I at the time then needed to move to the Boston area. And I had had some conversations at Mass General in the pediatric endocrine division and really thought that there was a role for me there in clinical research. Unfortunately, when it was very close time to move to Boston, that role went away because of budget reasons. And they offered me a clinical position. And I'm happy that I was able to stay with that knowledge of what I really wanted and what I was really passionate about that young in my career. I actually didn't take that role at Mass General and went looking for other opportunities where I could do clinical research. And pediatric endocrinologists, we need to be in academic centers. Typically, we're not people who go into private practice. So there aren't a lot of centers where pediatric endocrinologists are hired. So there were limited opportunities for me. Given that, I started networking with everyone I knew. And one of the people in my network asked me if I would be interested in having my resume sent to a pharmaceutical or biotechnology company. And at the time, I really didn't know much at all about the pharmaceutical industry. And so I said, well, sure, why, why not? I'll, I'll take a look, give me you know, a job description, let me understand it better. And I realized that the pharmaceutical biotech industry would be a place where I actually could continue to do clinical research. So ultimately, I did land that job where the person in my network gave my resume, and that was my first entry into the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, And 15 years later, I've held multiple positions in our industry at large companies and small companies, and I'm really happy that I chose to continue utilizing my clinical research skills 
in a different arena than academic medicine. You know, what I find really interesting about your story is that what came to be began with an unfortunate circumstance. You were essentially stripped from the position that you were holding, the position that you thought you would pursue. And yet your work as a coach is in the pharmaceutical industry, but specifically it's in helping others pivot and shift in their work. So precisely the thing that would have seemed in retrospect an unfortunate circumstance is what you help facilitate for others. That's exactly right. Yeah. I actually call that experience as I look back on it fortuitous. It felt very scary. I was a young mom. You know, I was going to be responsible for most of our family's financial responsibilities. And so I really felt a lot of pressure. But now looking back, it really was fortuitous that that job went away and I landed somewhere that's been incredibly fulfilling for me. And I think this conversation is so timely, right? Because we are on the heels of the anniversary of one year of pandemic and quarantine. And as a result, have suffered so much financial instability and insecurity. And so many people have experienced insecurity in their jobs and positions, necessitating that they switch over or do something new. And others have had the time to really reflect on what they do and maybe reckon with the fact that they were not happy in their positions or in their careers and so are are voluntarily switching. And in that moment, there is a lot of fear because a lot of these people, you know, we are all financially responsible for our families and for our lives in addition to wanting to achieve joy in our work. So I wonder how did you at that time come to terms with that fear? How were you able to manage it or maybe channel it and not let it get the best of you so that you would take the kind of obvious, I think, option of just taking the job that was given to you? I was really true to myself from the standpoint of listening to what I really wanted. And I think that can be hard sometimes. You feel like you have to take the first opportunity because maybe it will be the last. And in this situation, I really stepped back and said, what do you really want? What are you really passionate about? What will you be good at? And let's wait for that opportunity to come. Although it was still scary, I think that I was able to focus that energy from being scared on the new job and actually learning everything I possibly could once I took that new job, even though it was scary to be in a place that I had never done that before. I really wasn't exactly sure of what my role would look like. I was able to use some of that maybe nervous energy to really focus on learning about the job. And, you know, it may seem strange to have this conversation on a health and wellness podcast, but as we were chatting before the recording, a sense of agency or a sense of autonomy in your work, the feeling that you have the ability to make decisions in your work and in your day-to-day affairs is actually a health attribute. They've associated that lack of autonomy to poor health outcomes like cardiovascular health. So for example, people who don't feel like they have that agency in their lives or autonomy in their lives are more likely to suffer heart attacks. It's quite fascinating that that can be a a determinant of health. Right. I think it completely feeds into that, right? That we think about if you have that opportunity of choice, 
really spending the time to find what's right and find where you will have that autonomy. And even the autonomy of thinking back to, I made this choice, right? I was responsible for it and I get to be empowered by making the choice that was right for me, right for my family. And also I think as, as you're talking, I'm thinking also of purpose and meaning, which there's also data for that being a, a determinant of health outcomes, the sense of having a purpose or finding meaning in the work that you do. But I wonder, you know, for the average person listening, it sounds beautiful, right? But there's practicality there. And in your case, it sounds like you had a significant financial responsibility in the household, which I think is that pain point for a lot of people. Can you speak to the, the practicality? I, I think I was lucky in the situation that this opportunity would allow me to be financially responsible for our family. It was a great opportunity from that perspective. But at the same time, just like I didn't let the decision to just take the clinical job drive this, this wasn't a decision only about financial outcomes, right? So I think Yes, we want to be able to take care of our family, but at the same time, I think you always have to think about are the extra dollars worth some of the trade-offs that you might get with losing time with your family? So all of those things have to go into any career decision, I think. It's not just about money, but it's also about time. It's also about, do you feel empowered like you were mentioning before? So any career choice, I think, really has to take a very global perspective and how you decide what job is right for you. So let's say an individual comes to you and tells you that they're unhappy in their current work circumstances and wanting a shift. And for you, you're, you're channeling that energy specifically into the pharmaceutical industry, but let's leave it open. And I'm interested specifically in your coaching tactics. What are some of the barriers, first of all, that you come across I think when people are looking to make a transition, often they do find themselves in a place of unhappiness or in our physician world, sometimes the term burnout is utilized a lot. In, in that setting, I really want to have clients be in a good place when they're making a decision to transition. So I think that's one of the biggest barriers to get past with people is they aren't making a decision out of necessity or desperation and that they're making a decision out of being in a really good place. So some of the things that I work with people to do is, you know, make a pro and con list. What do they like about their current career and what is a weakness of their current career or something that they don't enjoy. And really we delve into that and think about then is a transition into the pharmaceutical industry really going to fulfill the need that they have? Or is it something that maybe the same weaknesses or negatives in their current job would overlap in the pharmaceutical industry? So I don't want people to move from one negative to another negative. So we really do a lot of exploration of that piece before we move into the discussion of how to make a transition. It's really, should you make a transition and then how to make the transition. 
I want to double back on the first thing you said, which is making the transition from a good place. And what strikes me is that when somebody wants to leave a position, they're usually not in a good place, right? There's usually anger there or frustration, or perhaps there's, you know, altercations with management or bosses or coworkers. I understand what you're saying about really evaluating the position that you're in and being mindful, I guess, about what your limitations are presently and what you're seeking to improve. But can you talk a little bit about how you help people or what do you suggest to get them in that quote, good place? Yeah. So I think that it's really exploring and being understanding of what's driving you. So One of the things that I do in my coaching is actually some personality testing. So we utilize a tool similar to the Myers-Briggs personality type indicator. This is a, a type indicator, and it basically talks about four different preferences that we have. And so one of the preferences that's probably easiest to explain is either you're an introverted or an extroverted preference. And it's not about being shy or not. It's just where you derive your energy from. If you're an introvert, you derive energy from being more alone, having more alone time. If you're an extrovert, you derive energy from being around others. So that's just one of the four pieces. But you can learn a lot about a person's tendencies and things that drive them from doing tests such as this. So I utilize this early in the coaching so that we can talk through if something wasn't working at a previous job and the person wasn't in a good place, we can analyze some of that and think about maybe there was something about their preference that didn't fit well with that choice, or maybe there was something about their preference that didn't match well with their manager, for example. So if they can come into it, understanding some of their own preferences, it's not about changing other people, right? It's about understanding and being mindful of yourself so that you can then be true to your needs. And I really think a lot of us aren't as aware of our own selves as we should be. So that's where a lot of the mindfulness in my coaching comes in is all about let's figure out who you are as a person and make sure that you as a person understand that and find the best role for you. That's so great. And it's true that people can look up Meyer Briggs or similar tests and do it on their own. But also I find that a journaling practice where people just write down the things that give them joy, you know, like review their day and even the little things that give them joy, that is a good starting place. One thing I've heard from a lot of people, myself included, is that during this time where our work habits have changed and a lot of us are doing, for example, in my case, more telemedicine, there is definitely a part of me that misses interaction with humans and, you know, really feels like I'm missing the energy of the extrovert part of me, right? But I'm also finding that there's a part of me, an introvert, I joke, it's like my, I found my inner hermit that I've really been enjoying that maybe I wasn't even keen to before. So I think being, like you said, we don't always know what turns us on, so to speak, but being able to do that is really important in creating a career or a a job or a daily activity paid or otherwise that, that is fulfilling. Along those lines, it also makes me think of 
of values, right? Like people's core values. And does that go into your decision-making? And can you even just talk about, you know, what those examples of some of those things and maybe how you utilize that? Yes, I think that core values certainly go into this. You know, again, as we've talked about, most of my coaching is with physicians. And so one of the things that physicians go into medicine because they want to care for people. So when I have clients who come to me and say, well, I'd like to learn more about the pharmaceutical industry, but I'm worried because I will no longer be caring for patients. I think I'll miss that or that gets away from what I went to medical school for. You know, that is a core value that one, I want to help them understand how a career in the pharmaceutical industry does still help patients. So we talk a lot about that. That's one of the key things that comes up with many clients is that ability to care for people and why they went to medical school. So I I would say that's a big core value. The other one, of course, is related to time with family. We have a very different attitude these days, not just for women, but for men as well, right? People want time with with their children, with their families, with their pets. So thinking about how their career allows them some freedom to have weekends available. I, I think those are two of the core values that often come up in my coaching. To speak more broadly about that, some of these core values are like you mentioned, family or even autonomy, right? Being in a workplace in which you have more independence, so to speak, or caring for others, financial independence, for example. So there's a lot of these various core values. There's a great institute called VIA Institute where people can actually go and take these character tests that address not only values, but also key strengths. So kind of trying to elicit what you said before, which are, you know, what were the the areas in which they really feel comfortable and I've done it. It's an interesting exercise. So part of your prep, so to speak, is to address personal barriers, making sure that they're coming from a mindful place in making this transition, addressing values. Is there anything else that you consider in this preparatory phase for transition? Yeah, I think the other thing that comes up is confidence. And so this is really, you know, another thing about wellness, right? Do we feel comfortable in our own skin? Are we confident in who we are? And it's very interesting to me, actually, that regardless of the clientele, right? Again, I coach physicians. And so one might think physicians would be a group of people that generally are very confident, but it's very interesting that a lot of people that I work with don't feel that they bring much to the table. And so I work a lot with people on confidence and self-esteem, belief in themselves, and really helping them to understand that they shouldn't downplay the things that they've accomplished, what they bring to the world. And I suspect that for all of your listeners, there are many of us who may appear externally as highly, highly accomplished, but maybe underneath aren't always feeling that confidence. So that's something that I work a lot with clients on as well. Yeah, I think it's also along those lines important to point out that you don't need to have all the answers or know all the answers now but the, having confidence in the ability to figure things out. And I know that a barrier often for women specifically 
is that when they apply for a job or when they look at a job description, they only feel comfortable taking that position when they can, with 100% certainty, state that they can check all of the boxes. Whereas men are more likely to not feel that they need to be certain about their abilities in each of these areas or whatever the job description may be but have confidence in being able to figure it out. And so that's really important for transition too, because no matter how accomplished you are in one profession, for example, being a physician, if you're jumping ship to something completely different and you you feel like you must know everything before you jump ship, then you never will, right? Absolutely. I, I was just, you know, nodding my head the whole time you were speaking because exactly what you were saying, that statistic, especially about women, but even I see this with some of the the male clients as well, looking at a job description where it says, you know, you must have three plus years of experience in XYZ. And if they don't have that, they'll say, well, I can't apply for that job. And I say, no, that's not the approach. The approach is we're going to try. There are some kind of buffers, you know, if it says 10 years of experience, maybe that's not the right role. But if it's two years or three years, you know, again, like you were just saying, you can figure this out. You know, you come with a skill set. So what you have to do is really, in a way, sell your skill set to the person that you're interviewing with and tell them why, even if you don't have that certain experience, that you do have experience that will allow you to do the job well. We've been speaking for about half an hour now, and I'm hesitant to shift gears, but I really am curious about your passion in the pharmaceutical industry. And I know that for you, it really matched your desire to do research, you know, way back then. And so it made sense. But here you are now kind of siphoning people off from other areas, right? And positioning them in this industry. What is it about the pharmaceutical industry, which sometimes gets a bad rap, right? Um, that you find so intriguing and why do you think it's something worth pursuing? So the reason I feel it's worth pursuing is the pharmaceutical industry is developing new drugs for patients all the time. And the area that I specifically work in is rare diseases. So people with rare diseases are people who until about 20 or so years ago, really didn't have much drug development focused on them. And then there were some legislative changes and that led to more focus on developing drugs for patients with rare diseases. So I'm very passionate about that. I get to meet many of these patients with rare diseases. And I really know that when I go to work every day, when I'm working on a clinical trial, I know the patients that I'm there working to bring something or bring a cure to or bring a medicine that will help them tremendously. So that's really the pull for me every day. And the passion is that although I'm not seeing individual patients, I know that I'm helping a population of patients with diseases that don't always get much attention or clinical drug development position towards them. What comes to mind is that one of the criticisms, right, of the pharmaceutical industry is cost of drugs. But I think what people don't recognize 
is the tremendous amount of money and energy that goes into successful drugs, as well as all that is lost, right, in unsuccessful drugs. So how many drugs are out there that they've invested so much money in that have failed at the end? And at the end of the day, somebody has to pay for that. Can you just, without getting too technical, can you go through that pathway of what it entails to bring a drug to life? So uh, you're right. You know, it does take many years and there are many drugs that unfortunately might look like they're going to be successful and then they ultimately fail and can't get approved or come to market to be utilized in patients. And that might be because they don't work well to do what they were supposed to do, or it could be because they're not safe. And certainly we wouldn't want to bring a drug to the market that wasn't safe. So the process actually starts in what we call preclinical development, where we're testing drugs or chemicals in cell lines. We're testing to see if we're getting effects. We're testing to see about things like safety. So there's a lot that happens even before we start doing clinical trials in humans or patients. Once we get into humans and patients, that process even can be five, six, eight, ten 10 years to get a drug from the first studies, which are called phase one studies, all the way through the studies where a group like the FDA or Food and Drug Administration would look at those studies and ultimately make a decision about approving the drug. That's called a phase three study. So it, it's many, many years to get from deciding you have a potential drug to moving it into human subjects and ultimately getting a drug approved. Right. And then, and then paying for all those resources, including the researchers who are involved in those tremendous number of years of work. I love that your work is in developing drugs for rare diseases. There are a few individuals that come to my own mind of friends and children of friends who have rare diseases. And I know that it can be so filled with hope and triumph and also so difficult you know, to endure this process of, of hoping for a cure or a treatment. I would love an anecdote or a story of one of your successes. Midway through my career, I had the opportunity to work in a very rare disease, you know, rare enough that physicians who specialize in these rare bone disorders, which is what it was, sometimes had never seen one of these patients before. So it was a very rare disease, which meant that unfortunately it sometimes went undiagnosed or the diagnose was missed because it just was something that most people had never seen or had any experience with. And this disease could be fatal in young, you know, infancy or young childhood. So very serious disease. And I had the opportunity to work on a drug that ultimately was approved for these patients. And what that has turned into over the course of now almost 10 years, maybe eight years, is that many, many more physicians know about this disease. Many more of these patients are being diagnosed appropriately. And not only are they being diagnosed appropriately, 
But now there's a drug to actually help them to live much, much longer and have, you know, really good quality of life. So it's really changed the trajectory for these patients. So that's been really just a fantastic opportunity to have been a part of, again, as I mentioned earlier, you know, being able to get to know families of these patients, mothers, fathers that have really poured all of their energy into helping their children. So it's, it's a very rewarding thing to be able to accomplish. Yeah, that's beautiful. And as I'm watching you speak, because we are on a Zoom together, I, I could see your face light up. And so not only is that benefit to society, but of course, benefit to your own health and well-being. I appreciate your time, Dr. Nerissa. I think that this was a nice conversation. Uh, like I said, I think it's a timely conversation because so many people are grappling with their own positions and their careers um, right now. And it, it sounds so hopeful, you know, a, a path towards transition that while scary is optimistic. Definitely. Yeah, I definitely think that there's the right career pathway out there and you just have to spend a little bit of time finding it, but definitely we should all be hopeful. So if people want to learn more about you and your work and your coaching practice, where can they find you? So on my website is the best place. It's uh, industrymdcoach.com or www.industrymdcoach.com. I have a blog, so I publish different stories. I publish tips and pointers, some of the confidence work that we talked about and uh, stories there on the blog can be really helpful for people. That's wonderful. Well, we'll make sure to put those in the show notes. And once again, thank you for joining me for this lovely conversation. I enjoyed it. I did too. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and are inspired to take a small bite towards your own health and wellness. If you love what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes and Spotify or anywhere else you podcast and share us. If you're looking for more inspo, you can find lots of content and sign up for my newsletter at dellnutrition.com. There you can learn more about me and my curated line of supplements and functional protein bars. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to seeing you again next week.